as we continue the series on our first priority, what are we called to do in this life? And uh, it's pretty simple, but we're going to expand on it and think about it, meditate on it, which is uh, to love God. And so uh, let's look again at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and let's hear God's word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together. O Lord our God, how can a person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. And so, Lord, we seek you with all your heart, with all our hearts. Do not let us stray from your commands. We have hidden your words in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We give you praise, O Lord. Teach us your decrees. With our lips, we recount all the laws that come from your mouth. We rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. We meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. We delight in your decrees. We will not neglect your word. Help us, O Lord, to hear it today. Amen. How does, how does love grow within us? How do we love anything? Well, it's, it's rooted in how we see things. We, we love what we see as lovable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we see these things with our eyes. For example, we may love the town we grew up in. That doesn't mean that we necessarily live there, but we have it in our mind, and we, and we have all kinds of memories that are, are brought to our hearts, and so we love that place. Or we may say we, may, we love our children. That doesn't mean we only love them when we see them with our, right, right in front of us. We love them even when we don't see them because we have them in our mind, and we see them as, as lovable, and we see them as, as, peop, as people that uh, are highly valuable to us. And so you see that love grows by how we think about the object that is love, how we see it in our minds. <clears throat> and so it's not surprising then that when Moses calls us to love the Lord our God, he begins by encouraging us to see and hear of the Lord. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what I'm going to do today is, is have us consider this little phrase and try to help us see how this helps us to become people who love the Lord. How it helps us to see the Lord as the one who is entirely and completely lovable. And so notice how Moses begins. He begins by saying, hear, hear, O Israel, hear, people of God. So why does he say this? Well, he calls them to stop what they're doing. He calls them to step outside of their ordinary life and think 
and hear about the Lord. Many things are on their minds and hearts. They're concerned about many things. They're looking ahead to going into the promised land. But they need to stop and see the Lord God himself. Hear, O Israel. Stop for a minute. Begin to see the Lord. And, you know, the same call goes out to us today. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. We are a society that is on the go. We're always go, 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 go. We always have things we're doing. Even when we're home, we got lists of tasks, right, that we got to be doing. And so it's always go, go, go. We, and uh, if we have a moment, we pick up our phone, we got things to do on our phone, right? So we don't stop that much. But what God is calling us to do here is to stop and not look at the things around us, not look at the things that we need to do, but then to simply think upon who he is, to see the Lord as our God, as the one who is one. Now, in order to do this, we know that we need God's help. And so whenever we try to do this, to try to meditate on him, we should always begin with prayer and seek the Lord and say, help us, O Lord, to see who you are. Open our eyes to see the greatness of your wonders and your love. And we can see that, in essence, Moses is trying to help them (coughs) take this phrase and by giving them this phrase to think about who who God is. And so I want us to, to look at each aspect of this phrase. First of all, the Lord, then our, our God, and then that the Lord is one. And we're going to see what did Moses mean by each of these three things, and then how does each one of those help us to grow in love to the Lord by God's grace. All right, so <clears throat> what did Moses mean by the Lord when he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord. Now, one, one of the, this is a, there's a confusing thing in the Bible. Um, and that is that there, is, there are two words in Hebrew that are translated as one English word, Lord. So you have the Lord, which is generally written, written with a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. And that is the word Adonai, which means like the Lord, the master the one who is in charge. Then there is another Hebrew word, which is translated the Lord, but in most of your Bibles, you'll see it in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And this word is is the word um, Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, why do we use these two different ways of, of saying this word? Um, let alone using the Lord. <laughs> because uh, the, the Jewish people wouldn't actually got to a point where they wouldn't use this word. Whenever they came across the word Yahweh or Jehovah in the Bible, they would say Adonai. And they still do that today. If you go to the synagogue and they're reading, they'll say Adonai. They won't say Yahweh or Jehovah. It's kind of their way of showing respect to the name. So the problem with that, though, is that Adonai then got used for these two terms, and and it's easy for us to miss something. And so when when the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the same word for Adonai and Jehovah. They used the word kurios, which means Lord. And in the the New Testament as well, the, the apostles, when they talked about the Old Testament, they didn't say Jehovah or Yahweh. They used the word kurios. They used the word 
the Lord. So it's okay to do it, right? The apostles did it. It's okay. We don't have to worry that we're not using the right name or whatever. Uh, we, can, we can follow the apostles on this. Now, I'm just telling you this because to help you understand, there's a little bit of a complication. We just have to, we actually have to think about it. <laughs> so it's a little tough. We got to think about it. That's what we're trying to do now. So what, which word is being used here? It is, it is Yahweh or Jehovah. You see that in verse 4, it says the Lord in all caps. Now, this, this word, we should think of it as, as being sort of the proper name for God. So such as he, the type of being he is, is God, and, and his name is Yahweh, like I am a human, and my name is Wes. So God is, is God, that's the type of being he is, and his name is Yahweh. When he revealed himself to Moses in, at the burning bush, he used this word, this name, Yahweh, or the Lord, and he said, I am who I am. And this tells us what it, what it indicates, what it means. It means that God is, is infinitely above anything that we could think. He's far beyond us. In, in a way, it's almost like he can't be named because he's so much greater than everything. And that's why he told them that they weren't to use any image whatsoever to depict him. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, You saw no form of any kind the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or anything else. And so they wanted, what he was saying is, don't try to think of me like the Egyptians did in terms of animals or other objects. Instead, let your mind go far beyond that. Use the word and exalt your conception of the Lord. When it comes to his relationship to the world, what it means is that he can do anything. That there's no limit on what he can do in the world. As it says in verse 34 of chapter 4, Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. In other words, Egypt's the great nation. It was like the nation on top of the world at this time. But even Egypt could not stand up to the Lord because the Lord can do anything. On the other side, if we offend the Lord because he's greater than everybody and far beyond us, then no one can deliver us from his hand. For it says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So you don't want to mess with the Lord. Who else is, who's going to help you? Who will deliver you from the hand of the Lord if the Lord is against you? Now, <clears throat> how does this help us to, to love God by knowing this name? Well, if you think about how we, um, even our particular area, why do people come here? Well, they like the food, they like the shows, they like the, the attractions. But, but the baseline for why people come here is the mountains, right? Now, why do people love the mountains? 
because they're awesome, they're great, they're magnificent, they're far above us, they represent something that's, that it goes way beyond who we are. And so, in a similar way, our heart is inclined to move to in awe and wonder and love of that which is great. And so, the Lord, of course, is far above and beyond the Smoky Mountains. Another way uh, we can think about this is when you look out in the universe and see the, the night sky and see the stars and the, and the moon and the sun and the planets. And there's something amazing about it. And our, our heart kind of lifts up when we take just some time to see that because it's so amazing. It's so vast. And actually now we can see further than we ever could before in any time of history. And we realize that it's far vaster and then we ever imagined. It's far bigger than we ever thought. There's 100 million galaxies with 100 million stars in each one. And we might ask, well, why did God create such a thing? Well, I think it's because God wanted us to give a sort of visual of how great he is. So we could see that and then move our hearts beyond that. So here's what I, here's what I would say to do. Think of anything that you imagine as great. As that causes your heart to, to lift up, whether it's the mountains or the sky or something else. And then just begin to think that God is infinitely above that. Let it move your heart beyond the things that you see to the great God who's infinitely above even the almost infinite universe. And let that cause your heart to be stirred to see the wonder of the Lord and to love him. Now, <clears throat> that conception, though, could actually cause us uh, not necessarily to be loving God, but to run from him in terror. Because if we see our sin and we realize we've offended the Lord, then <laughs> seeing his greatness <clears throat> could lead us to say, we are in trouble. But that's why it's so important what Moses adds next. Because he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God. So what did he mean by our God? Well, we can use this term, our God, in a couple of ways. In one sense, um, we can use it to refer to creation because God is the creator, so he made everything. Everything belongs to him. If we are made by God, then we owe him everything we have, and in that sense, he is our God. But that's not what Moses means here. What, God was, what Moses was saying to us um, <coughs> is that God chose this people to be the special object of his love. You can see what this means in Deuteronomy 7 um, and verse 6. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. His treasured possession. And so what it means is God loved them and set his affection upon them and he chose them to be his people. It's interesting, when I was studying for this sermon, I just I used a, a search engine to look up the word love and I just wanted to compare the, the different uses that, uh, of the word love in this book. And what was interesting is if you do that, go to BibleGateway.com, you know, type in the word love, click on the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see 
most of the mentions of most of the times that uh, love is mentioned, it refers not to our love to God, but God's love to His people, because that's the foundation. He was their God, meaning that He loved them, and He and He chose them to be a special people. And because of this, He not only chose them, He redeemed them, and what that means is that he brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves, and he brought them out, and he was bringing them to a land where they could serve him and love him. As it says um, in verse 8 of chapter 7, But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so he loved them, And so he redeemed them. Now, why did he do this? Why did he love this nation of Israel so much? Why did they become his special possession? Well, it wasn't because they were greater or bigger than any other nation. Listen to verse 7 of chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You know, if you think about what nation, you know, you're looking at ancient history, you study ancient history, and you think, well, what nation would God choose? I think maybe Egypt, China, Mesopotamia, Sumer. No, he chose a nation that was just a bunch of slaves in the land of Egypt. And so it shows it was his gracious choice that he would select them. Now, we might say, well, maybe, maybe, They weren't the biggest nation, but maybe they were more righteous than other nations. Maybe they were more religious and more devoted to the Lord. Well, God says, nope. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out, the peoples who lived in the land before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, It's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. In verse 6, he says, Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are stiff-necked people. So they weren't even righteous. And he he goes on, if you read the rest of the, the, from there in the rest of chapter 9, he's like, "Let's, let's remember what happened. I did something I'd never done before, God says. I spoke to you audibly to your whole nation and gave you the Ten Commandments. And what did you do after that? You, built, you did exactly what I told you not to. You, you built a golden calf and worshipped that and said, this is our God, and you, and you were ready to go say, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And so this is, this is who they were. Now, you might say, well, maybe God saw that they would be better in the future, that, if, that this nation would end up being more righteous in the future. But read the rest of Deuteronomy. He said, Moses says, after I die, you're going you're gonna to do worse than you did while I was alive. And eventually, the Lord's going to drive you out of this land, but he'll bring you back. Not because you merited it or earned it, but the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you will love him with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. No, it was his grace, it was his gift, and it was his sovereign decision to make this people his special people. And so, how does that help us to love God? Well, we can say very similar things to the church today, because we are are God's people. 
And we can say, when so many people haven't even heard about Jesus in the history of the world and today, you have heard. God sent you his message. He put you in a land where you would be, where you would be able to hear in abundance, where there was churches would call upon the name of Jesus. And then he made you able to respond to his gospel call by his grace. And in spite of the fact that you've done many things to, not, to make yourself unworthy of this blessing, he's continued to be faithful to you and give you gift upon gift upon gift. And he's promising to do you good in the future and to enable you to stay on the path. And so we can say, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of God's grace and glory, he has given us all these things. And so that gives us a foundation to love the Lord. Now there's the foundation in who he is. If we really see God as God, it's going to make our hearts want to go there. But again, our sin is the problem. But God is saying, I brought you back to me. I've reconciled you. I've chosen you. I've redeemed you. You're my people. And now how much more should we love God when we don't even deserve anything from his hand? It gives us a whole new reason to love God. That's what it means when we say the Lord, our God. And we can't meditate on that enough. Now, there's one more phrase here. And he says, the Lord, again, using that proper name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, in all caps. And he says, the Lord is one. So why does he say this? Because the Lord is the only God. He's the only one in whom we can find ultimate blessing, joy, and hope. He is where the joy is. There is no other place to go. He's the only game in town. If we're going to find hope, if we're going to find deliverance, if we're going to find joy, if we're going to find redemption, it is only in him. There's no one else that you can go to. And God, God did all that he did for Israel to show them that he was the only one in whom they could find joy and happiness and blessing. Listen to what he says in verse um, 35 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 35. He said, you were shown these things, all the things that he did with Egypt, so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. All these things he has done, so you would know, he is the one. He is the one we are made for. He is the one we are redeemed for. He is the one we, in whom we find happiness and consequently the one whom we should love. Now God knows that our heart is inclined to go after so many other things, to, find our, to try and find our ultimate joy and happiness in the pleasures that God has given us, in the people that God has given us, in the work that God has given us, in, in the associations and, and communities that he has given us. But none of these things will bring us the joy and delight that our relationship with God himself Will bring. And so he warns them that if they go after other gods, it will not be for their blessing, it will be for their destruction. If our heart tries to find our ultimate meaning and happiness and love in anything he's created, we end up bringing destruction to ourselves and often to the things, the objects that we try to put in the place of God. No, the Lord is one, he's the only one. He's the only one in whom we can find our hope and happiness and delight. And so if we're, our heart needs a place to go, we're all looking for someone, something to love, to give our devotion to. 
And God is saying, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. So here's my challenge for you this week. To simply try and find some margin, some time this week that you set aside, even if it's a little bit, to just meditate on what this means to you and how that would help you to love the Lord your God. Can you find some time to really listen to the call that is going out? Because it's still going out. It's going out to you today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Amen.